let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of John as we continue our study through this uh, awesome Gospel. Uh, it's starting in, uh, we're going to look at chapter 4 in a message entitled, The Fountain of Life. So let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank you for this morning and for the time we have together as a church to gather around your word to worship the Lord God of the universe who was and is and is to come. And as we sing those songs and think about it, Lord God, we do pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. We look forward to your eternal kingdom fully consummated where righteousness will fully reign. Until that time, Lord God, we ask that you would empower us by your spirit to glorify you in this present age until you return. And we ask that you would teach us how to do that as we look at your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, the Gospel of John chapter 4, the fountain of life. As I was thinking about uh, a title for this sermon as I was was studying this week, you know, I thought of the fountain of youth, but that's not really what hopefully we're looking for. Uh, I thought of just the fountain of life. What does, maybe it's just a current phenomenon, I'm not sure, uh, or it's cultural, a cultural thing, but it always seems like we never get enough of whatever it is. Have you noticed that? Even of worship, for me, it's like, I want more, you know. Uh, even in sports, I think of current, you know, society, sports, they're always looking, like they're always forecasting into the future instead of just enjoying the moment, uh, even with politics, as politics are really big right now for a number of reasons, obviously, it's all about the next 63 days until the president gets there, and then the next four years, and who's going to run after that? There's always this sense in our culture, at least for me, that we're always looking forward to something in the future, that we can never just be satisfied with what we have. And I have a feeling that we even have that in our sense as Christians, in our relationship with God. We're always looking for the next thing. Um, Maybe it's uh, the next prayer that God answers, the next thing God does in our life, or even as we look forward to heaven and eternity. And I think of that too. I'm like, well, what are we going to be doing? If it's eternity, for me, I maybe freak myself out, you know, it's like, well, what's, what are we waiting for? What are we, what, I mean, what's there to look forward to? I just think I don't have an understanding of it, obviously, of just enjoying what we have. And I think in this story this morning as we look at it, I think Jesus is trying to explain that to a woman at a well about enjoying what is right in front of her and truly understanding that. And so I hope this morning as we look at this, you'll get a better understanding of that And hopefully I give you a a little glimpse into enjoying the fountain of life. So let's look at the text this morning, beginning in in verse 1. We'll read the first six verses and kind of give you the setting of what's going on in the story. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, He left Judea and went away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he went into a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, 
being wearied from his journey, was, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So let's stop right here and give an understanding of what's going on. So Jesus, as you remember last week in our study, he was baptizing, or here it specifically says his disciples were baptizing people. And Jesus decides, you know what, I need to leave the area. For it says the Pharisees were aware that Jesus' crowd, or those who were following Jesus, was getting bigger. His ministry was expanding, and for maybe they were worried about what was going to happen if Jesus' ministry blew up. And Jesus, maybe understanding that he didn't want the Pharisees to deter his plan right away, moved on and was going to Galilee. And it says here in our story that Jesus had to pass through Samaria on his way to Galilee, and it was the quickest route. But there's something that you notice here in verse 4. It says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Jews didn't like to go through Samaria, as we'll study in a few moments. They'd ra- they would rather go around it because they didn't like Samaritans or people from that region. But here the story, John writes that Jesus had to do it. It may be, in some sense, Jesus was going there. Obviously, not in some sense. He was going there to meet somebody. So maybe that's why it says he had to go through. There was a divine appointment in a sense because Jesus was going to change the life of a woman and a people, the Samaritans. And so Jesus goes to Samaria with his disciples. And it says that Jesus sits at Jacob's well. And it says this for two reasons, if you notice. One, Jesus was weary, showing Jesus' humanity. He had just taken a trip. He was weary. He sits down on his journey and was thirsty. Another thing I want to notice, and you've, if you've been here for quite some time now, you notice in, God's, in John's gospel, there's always this behind-the-scenes story, a spiritual element to the natural thing that is going on. Jesus goes to the well, stops there because he's thirsty, but I think also that John was using this to, dis- to display a demonstration or demonstrate how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and institutions, and one of them being here at the well. Let me give you an example of this, just from what we've studied up to this point in the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, you remember, Jesus was called the sacrificial lamb, alluding to the Old Testament sacrifice. John used Jesus, and he's the fulfillment of that, the culmination of that. The lamb who's to take away the sins of the entire world. Not only that, he describes Jesus in chapter 1 as the incarnate word of God. Showing and demonstrating that Jesus is actually the God of the Old Testament. In chapter 2, remember he provided wine at the wedding. And it was an even better wine than what they had expected. Not only that, he also in chapter 2 demonstrated that he was the temple of God. The fulfillment of the temple of God. The temple of God was soon to be destroyed and there was no longer going to be a temple. And Jesus referred to himself as that temple as well. And then in chapter 3, we see that Jesus, John taught on this a few weeks ago, that that, uh, he was the fulfillment of Moses' serpent being raised up in the desert. And everybody that looked to that serpent would be healed. And Jesus said, I'm that serpent in a sense. I'm that fulfillment. I'm what this pointed to. And John does this over and over in his gospel, and he's going to do it here again at the well. Because Jesus, as we'll see, is the fountain of life that provides living 
water. So let's, with that context and that understanding, I hope that helps you understand where we're going. Look at verse 7. Let's read a few verses here. And we'll see that Jesus is going to give living water, and we're going to explain that as well. It says, there came a woman of Samaria. So Jesus is sitting at the well, Jacob's well. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here we see a woman coming to the well, which is, na- which is normal. You know, the, the place where they would get water. So they went to the well. She's getting well to, or water to take back to her home. And as she comes, Jesus asks her for a drink. And that goes to verse 9. Shows that she's surprised. Look at this. It says, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And John here uh, gives us a hint to why this is such a surprise. She says, for, or he says, For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this woman was surprised, first of all, that a, that a man would talk to her. But second of all, that he was Jewish and she was a Samaritan and that she, that he would talk to her. He was asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. And John, as I said, says that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Well, why not? What was the issue? What was going on? Just a little background here on why the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Well, they were thought of as unclean by the Jewish people. They were nationally Jewish mixed with other nationalities. So they were a mixed nationality. They weren't pure Jews. You see, they were part of the northern tribes. If you remember our studies in the book of Kings a a couple years ago, or maybe in your own studies, the northern tribes of Israel were taken away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and they were never to return like the southern tribes. Remember the southern tribes went into Babylon and they returned to Israel. But the Jewish people of the northern tribes that were taken by Assyria, when they came back to the land, there were already other people living in that land and they intermingled with them. So the northern tribes are considered what you may have heard the lost tribes of Israel because their identity was lost. And they, were made, and this is, they lived and in, in, uh, settled in the land of Samaria and so they were called Samaritans. And not only that, they had lost their religious heritage. Being intermingled with other nationalities or in other nations, they took on some of their pagan practices. Eventually, they shed those and began to worship the only Lord God of Israel, Yahweh. But something that's interesting, and we'll talk about this a little more, is that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. The law, the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and we'll get into that a little bit more, and, and you'll see that come out in some of the questions that this woman asked Jesus. So that's what's going on. They were a, a mixed race, and the Jews had wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And, and part of that adopting the pagan forms of worship and being segregated from the southern tribes, the Samaritans worshipped at Mount uh, Gerizim, not Jerusalem. Because they only accepted the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, they remember that Abraham had first set up an altar there in the Promised Land. In the nation of Israel, the southern tribes worship in Jerusalem because that's where David had decided to build the temple of God. And that will come out more as we go along. 
So this is what's going on. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus answers and says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus answers her in a spiritual sense. And if you notice as we've gone through the Gospel of John, Jesus always does that. He always makes, he turns everything to the spiritual side of things. And this is the way Jesus had always talked. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about being born again? And Nicodemus was like, well, how can I be born again? Do I go into my mother's womb and born again? He's like, no, that's not what we're talking about. It's not this natural means. And remember the temple of God, he says, you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And they thought, this temple took over 40 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And then John gives us the commentary that, no, he was talking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is always doing this, going to the spiritual side of things. And that's why he says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was or who you were talking to, you would have asked and I would have given you a drink of living water. And so she doesn't catch it yet because look at verse 11. She says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank it in himself and his sons and his cattle. So she stays on that natural level, right? She's thinking of like reality in her eyes. She says, you don't even, you're going to give me this living water. You don't even have anything to get into this well to give water. And this well is deep, by the way, Jesus. And then she says, do you think you're greater than our father Jacob? Uh, The answer is yes, he is. This is just another example of the in the gospel, how John demonstrates to his audience that Jesus is the Messiah. He is even greater than Jacob, who they revere. So Jesus answers her again in verse 13 in a spiritual sense. Look at what he says. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So again, Jesus goes to the spiritual. Everyone who drinks this water, he says, you're just you're going to get thirsty again, right? It's it quench your thirst for a short amount of time. But you're going to have to come back here again and and bring up water from this well. It's not going to ultimately quench your thirst forever. You have to continually come back to it. And so if you drink this water, you're going to thirst again. And he says, the water that I give will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. He says, what I have is so much greater. Now, if you think about this, the natural things in our world are like this water. Whatever we partake of, we're going to want more. Right? If we get paid, we want more money. If we eat, we eventually want more food. If we go out and have a good time, it's great, it's temporal, but then we're looking for the next good time. We're looking for the next experience, the next excitement in our life. On and on, there's things in our life that we look forward to, and once we get there, we're happy for the moment, but it doesn't completely satisfy. Right? As a young person, you might think, well, when I graduate high school, then life is going to be great. And then it's when I get through college, then life is going to be great. And then when I get married, 
life is going to be great. And then when I have kids, life is going to be great. Then when I retire, life is going to be great. Then when I have grandchildren, life is, it's always the next thing. That's what I mentioned at the beginning. We live in a world like that. We all think like that. But all those things are temporal. They don't ultimately completely finish our satisfaction. They're great. And I look forward to all those parts of my life. And Jesus is saying in a way, this water, you're going to thirst again. There's so much more. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. The temporal things in our life are all fleeting. They don't last very long. It's kind of like when you go to a, uh, a theme park. You stand in line for a really long time, right? And then when you get on the ride, how long does that ride last? A couple minutes, maybe. A few seconds. And then what? Let's get in line again and wait for the next one. That's life. It's a life of waiting. We have to learn how to be satisfied in the process of waiting. Again, you will continually have to come back. This is what Jesus is telling the woman. You will have to continually come back and work for this temporal satisfaction. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon talks about this over and over again. He says, I did this as much as I could, and in the end it was vanity. And then I did this as much as I could, and it was vanity, and it was all worthless. He ultimately says, I'm going to die, and somebody else is going to inherit it all. It's temporal. And Jesus is trying to prove this point to this woman and making her see beyond the temporal water and what he has. His water is spiritual, though. It's not physical. He doesn't really have water in the sense of water, like the physical water he's going to give her. He's talking about something else. So what is it that he's talking about? And I want to show you this from the Old Testament. It's really, it's really rich. As you study the Old Testament more and more, the New Testament comes alive so much more. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. And I'm going to show you just a few verses that are really give you an understanding of what Jesus is talking about, the significance of water in the Old Testament. Why does he talk about living water? So turn with me to Isaiah, chapter 12. We're going to look at about four Old Testament verses here just to give you an idea of what's going on. And all these meanings, I believe, are bound up in what Jesus is offering to this woman about never thirsting again, being completely satisfied. In Isaiah chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, water is symbolic for the gift of salvation. Look at what it says. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust God. And not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joy, joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And go to chapter 44 of Isaiah and look at verse 3. Water here is symbolic of God's spirit. Isaiah 44, verse 3. He says this, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Again, another way the Old Testament talks about water. Again, I believe these are all bound up in what God, or Jesus, is offering this woman. He's offering her salvation. He's offering him or her the Holy Spirit and even himself. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 and 8. 
This is a prophetic use of water in relation to God's consummated blessing on his people. Zechariah 14. Those are those little books that we don't flip to all the time, so your pages are probably really like perfect in your Bible. So the trick is like kind of like mess it up as you're going along. So when someone grabs your Bible, like, wow, that guy is reading Zechariah a lot. Just kidding. Zechariah 14. Look at verse 6. He says, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. This should, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, this should remind you of what it says at the end of Revelation where there's no more stars and the sun There's no need for those things. Why? Because the Lord God is their light. I believe this is what Zechariah is talking about. He says, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that evening time there will be light. My son Jonathan would love this because he never has to go to bed, right? We're always saying, it's dark, it's bedtime, it's like 4.30 in the afternoon. No, he says, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in the day, look at this, and in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be in summer as well as in, in, as in winter. This is talking about the final days. This is talking about eternity. Again, describing living waters flowing. And one last one. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Here, water is a metaphor for God himself. I really like this verse. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. He says this, For my people, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, Look at how he describes himself. The fountain of living waters. God describes himself as the fountain of living waters. Interesting. So they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to do what? To hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now that's a sermon in itself right there. But I just want to show you that all these, defin- all these illustrations and metaphors of water in the Old Testament are bound up in what Jesus is offering to this woman. Again, water in the Old Testament is symbolic for the gift of salvation. It's symbolic of God's Spirit. It's symbolic of eternity. And it's symbolic of God Himself. So God is offering salvation, eternity, blessings, and Himself to this woman at the well. And obviously, it's easy for us to go, yeah, we see that. But if we were probably at the well with this woman, we would be asking the same questions and not fully understanding it. So with that said, let's go back to the Gospel of John. And let's look at verse uh, 15. What does she say to all this? After Jesus offers her this living water that is going to well up inside of her, and she'll never thirst again. She says probably what we would all say. The woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water. Like, I'm in. I want it. And she's still thinking naturally, though. Right? She says, and this is why, So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. 
She's like, if I have this water, I never have to come out to the well and draw water for myself. I mean, we forget how hard it was to just go and get water. Right now, right now we can just run down to the, to the store or to the gas station and pick up, you know, a 24-pack of water and then be on our way. No, she had to go out to the well where everybody was, draw the, the bucket up to get the water, pour it in her pot and do it again, and then carry that pot full of water back to her home. She's saying, I want this water that you have that I'll never thirst again. I don't have to come back here and draw it. Again, she's on that natural level. And so Jesus says to her, look at verse 17, or actually verse 16. Jesus taking it back to the spiritual level, what he's really talking about. He says to her, go and call your husband and come here. That's kind of weird, right? She's like, I just want some water. Now you're telling me to go get my husband? What does he need to come here for? The woman answered and said, I have no husband. This is interesting. And Jesus says to her, you've correctly said I have no husband. For you have five, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So I think Jesus is trying to get her to look at the spiritual side again. Hey, I have what I'm offering you is salvation. And I think in a sense he needs her to confess her sins. He's like, go and get your husband. She goes, I don't, I don't have a husband. He says, right, you have, you've had five guys as a husband. Not five guys, burgers and fries. Although she might have had her burgers and fries and ate them too, right? She's got five husbands, or had five husbands. Now she's living with another guy who's not her husband. She admits that to Jesus, and Jesus gets upset. He says, you've said that truly, you're right. And because of this, let's read on. She says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's not talking to an average man here that she met at the well. No, she's talking to somebody that's a little bit different, somebody that knows things about her that, you know, he maybe has no business knowing. He wouldn't know about her life, so he must be somebody divine or have some divine knowledge of things. And so she says you must be a prophet. And as she begins to see that Jesus is more than a man, she now kind of goes to a spiritual level and asks a spiritual question. Look at verse uh, 20 or 19. She says to, the woman, to, the, to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And she has this question. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Remember at the beginning I said the Samaritans, that's who she's talking about, worshipped at Mount Gizarim. And you people, the Jews, worship in Jerusalem where King David authorized the building of the temple. And she says, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. So she's like, where do we worship? Maybe she's starting to get it. Do we worship over here where our people say, or do we worship where the Jews say that we need to worship? Since you're a prophet, she's asking, where do we worship? Jesus explains what true worship is to her. Look at what he says in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So in this mountain in Samaria or in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. I believe this is an allusion to her limited understanding because they only have the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, where the Jews have the, entirety, the entire revelation of God in the Old Testament. They have the law, the prophets, and the writings. 
He says, but an hour is coming, and now is, it's now because Jesus has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is explaining what true worship is. It's not about a location. It's not about a religious shrine. It's not in the mountain where you guys believe it is, and it's not even at the temple. Remember last chapter or two chapters ago, Jesus cleared the temple because worship was not happening there either. It's about the matter of the heart. And in the process of doing this, Jesus says, you know what? There's coming a time, and now is the time, because the Messiah has arrived, that those who truly worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? I think last uh, two weeks ago when John explained to us, when he taught us John chapter 3, look at verses 5 and 7. Here's what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Again, you can worship God anywhere at any time. There's one condition. It must be in spirit and truth. Those go together. They go hand in hand. Again, it's not about where you are. Because if God is spirit, he is everywhere. So you can worship him anytime and anywhere. Izzy rightly always says, continue to worship even after you leave church. We worship God all the time. And in John chapter 3, look at verses 5 through 7. This is Jesus' uh, interaction with Nicodemus about being born again. Jesus answered Nicodemus in verse 5 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you that you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God must reside in you. And then you can truly worship God. A lot of people worship different things at different times, but unless they are filled with God's Spirit, they are not truly worshiping Him. In addition, it must be done in truth, meaning the truth of who God is. You can only worship God if you know who He is. You could say you're worshiping God, but you're really not if you don't know who He is. And again, this goes back to what Jesus alluded to to her. He says, you guys worship what you do not know, because they only, had, they only believed the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament. That was their, their entirety of their understanding of God. But God has revealed, been revealed throughout the Old Testament. And for us, the modern-day church, even in the New Testament, he continues to reveal himself to us. He's saying, but we worship God who we know, for salvation is of the Jews. It's spirit and truth. You must worship God as a believer And that means you know who he is because you can't be a believer if you don't know who God truly is. A lot of people like to say, I'm spiritual and I can worship God, you know, out on my surfboard or wherever you want to go, whatever place you think God is. Yes, God is everywhere. He is spirit. He's not a human being like us in a sense. But you can only worship him if you truly know who he is. Just saying I'm spiritual and I'm going to worship God out here but if you don't know who God is, then you're not truly worshiping him. And this is what Jesus is saying here in um, chapter 4 of John. 
says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman's response to this, in verse 25, look at this. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. So she hasn't fully understood that he's Messiah yet. She believes he's a prophet of some sort because he knows some things. She goes, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So she's saying, hey, uh, you're telling me a lot of stuff, but when the Messiah comes, he's going to truly explain this to me. She hasn't caught on yet. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. He declares, I'm the Messiah. I'm that one you're looking for. I'm the one that even the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament talk about. I am he. I'm the one. I'm explaining to you these things right now, right in front of you. I'm the fountain of life who gives living water. At this point, verse 27, look at The disciples come and they were amazed that he had been speaking with the woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or what do you speak or why do you speak with her? So his disciples have come back. They see Jesus talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, but nobody dares says anything to Jesus or even to her. And look at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. So she goes back to her city, goes to the men of the city and says, there's this guy that's telling me things that that I've done that nobody knows. Is this the Christ? Is this the one we've been waiting for? And they're going to go out and see for themselves. And so they leave the city and go out to see Jesus. And that's where we're going to end our story this morning. But let me just give you a few points of application for each and every one of us. Number one. Let me ask you this. Have you drank from the fountain? Have you experienced regeneration and faith in Christ? Are you thirsty, spiritually speaking? Are you looking for the next big thing? Have you, have you been completely satisfied by God? The only way to be completely satisfied God, by God is by giving your life to Him. It's not about doing religious things or going to church or or doing this or doing that. It's about giving your life to Him and letting His Spirit fill you and empower you to live the life that He wants you to live. Have you drank from that fountain? If you haven't done that, I pray this morning that you will. When I close our sermon this morning, I'm going to give you that opportunity to invite Christ, to receive Christ as Lord and Savior and decide to follow Him you could pray with someone, there will be somebody in the back that would love to pray with you about that. Have you drank from that fountain? Or are you still seeking for something? He's the ultimate person that will quench that thirst in your life. We were made to worship God. And if you don't worship God, you're going to worship something else. And you're going to continually worship that forever and never be completely satisfied. Secondly, for those of you who are believers... For those of you that have already drank from the fountain, I would encourage you to go out into this world and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Remember I said you can worship anywhere, anytime. We are called to live a life of worship. That's one of the ways that we glorify God, by worshiping Him in our life in spirit and in truth. 
Now, does that mean you have to stand outside singing all the time? No, because that might, if that was, I was doing it, people would be freaked out by me, and they would walk away. You don't have a great voice. And I can't just stand on the street corner and start singing. But it's a lifestyle of worship. It's everything that we do gives honor and glory to God. Go out and do that. Each and every one of us is called to do that. And thirdly and lastly, just like this woman, once she met the Messiah, what did she do? She ran back to the city to tell everybody, I think this guy might be the Messiah. He's told me everything that I've ever done. And maybe she actually believed it, but because she was talking to leaders of her city, she didn't want to be teaching them, and so to speak, you know. She's like asking the form of a question so that they think they're the ones that are teaching her. So maybe she truly believed it at this time. She had an experience with the Messiah, and she went out and told everybody about it in her city. And so I would challenge you and myself this morning, if you have encountered the Messiah, that you would go and tell others about it. That's what we're called to do. We're called to worship God, and we're called to tell others about the Lord. The Gospel of John is all about that. Remember John's purpose for writing this Gospel was to tell people and give them a hope that Jesus was the Christ and that you can have that assurance of your salvation because of Him. And we need to do that as a church to the people in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank You for all that You give